Thank you, Taylor. Good morning, everybody. Um, it's really fun to be here. I've been looking forward to worshiping with you for a long time now. Um, I have the greatest amount of respect for your pastor, Dave, and Mike Lucas. I don't know wherever he's sitting, but we've been kind of building a little friendship over the last couple of years. Um, I'm 38, and I think the older I get, the more convinced I am that in this world there are two kinds of people, right? Um, the ones who like to camp and then the rest of us. Um, and I say this because I grew up in India, like in a city called Bangalore. It's exactly the other side of where Chicago is. So as far away as you can be from here. And I grew up in a city of about 12 million people or so. And so, and as a missionary kid, you grow, you go into all these villages, into tribal areas. We did all that stuff because that's what God called us to. The idea of paying to call that vacation just did not compute well to me. And so, um, in 2004, I uh, married my lovely wife, Katie, who's here. Um, Katie, on the other hand, grew up on the East Coast in upstate New York, grew up camping, and this was like their family's thing. And so after we got married in December of 2004, the summer of 2005 came, and she said, JP, you've got to be introduced to what was important to my family growing up. We're going to go camping. I was like, okay, you know, this is not my cup of tea, but... Um, I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to show her my medal as a, you know, man and whatever that entails. And, and so, and then she kept saying to me over and over again, this is, you know, bear country. <laughs> Not stuff you want to be saying, right? Um, and so I don't know what that meant. So I was like, okay, Katie, go ahead and do what you need to do and I'll, 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 I'll be cool with this. And so she found, you know, of course, in all this research, this little secluded spot up the beaten path. And she's like, that's, that's great. It'll be isolated. We can pitch our tent there. It'll be good. It's like, okay, whatever, got there. Um, what this meant is, you know, there's no water supply in these campsites. Nobody tells you these things. So every morning you get to get up and you take this little pitcher of water and you walk down this path and there's a little faucet, you fill water and you walk back and then you do all your dishes and then you can't pour the water there because the bears will come. So you got to go into the woods and pour the water there. And it's this constant back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, which again, I'm trying to prove something here, right? So I'm good with that, I'm good. What I did not plan on is people are really friendly in campsites. Um, I did not expect this. This is like, the, in, in regular life, they will not even look at you twice. But they're, they're best buds, right? So every time, every time I walk down this little beaten path, there's a man sitting there. And this is a, this is a, a camper we discovered later. For the last 22 years, his family had been coming here to camp. Different kind of category, right? Um, <laughs> But every time I walked by, he would say something like, how's it going? What's up? And I was not expecting him to greet me at all. And the moment I realized somebody was talking to me, I'd, I'd, I'd passed where he was sitting, right? Then it gets a little awkward. You can't like go back and be like, hi. So, <laughs> so I just kept going. Um, all, I mean, this is like for three days I've been doing this. Every, and you know, like there are like, I'm not kidding, like 752 times I went up and down that, that path every day. Um, <laughs> And, and every time he would say something. So then it got a little awkward, right? Like, then I, I felt like, I'm being really rude. That's not nice. Um, but as the, as the week went on, um, a greater um, sad thought came to my head. And that was, um, forget the fact that I'm being rude. He probably thinks I don't speak any English. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was thinking, <laughs> so I was thinking, okay, I, I, should, I, should, I should fix that. And you should realize, I had just come to the U.S., you know, like, as a college student. And college kids, you guys get this, 
you use slang like nobody's business. And if you don't know the slang, it's hard. Like, for example, when somebody says, how's it going? The correct response is, it's going great. How's it going for you? Or how's it going back, right? And if somebody says, what's up? You never, ever say plenty. You always say, not much. What's up with you? <laughs> I discovered, I'm not kidding. This is like stuff I discovered on my own. And uh, so last day, right? Last day, we're sitting at the beach. We're reading. Katie has to go back early. And then I pick up my lawn chair, and I pick up my book, and I walk. And I see this gentleman sitting on his chair. And in my head, I go through all these free, I mean, this, I'm a, English is not my first language, so I got to like think through what his greeting is going to be and how I'm going to respond. And I got to really be American about this, and I've got to show him I can speak my English well. And uh, so I'm rehearsing. How's it going? What's up? You know, all that, all that stuff. And, and as I walk by him, he says this to me. Catch the sunset? Now, this is not something that was in my head of uh, uh, <laughs> choreographed questions that you're supposed to ask. This is not at all what I was expecting. And I have like a split second to respond. So I look at him, and I'm not kidding. I said to him these words. I read book, and I walk back. <laughs> so... So now you get a little taste of my insecurities and who I am as a person. And uh, <laughs> I want to share with you a passage from Scripture. I know it's going to get a little like, okay, we're going to change uh, the tone a little bit, but, but you at least know who I am. Um, Genesis 20, this is a very familiar passage. If you have your Bibles, great. If not, just follow along. I'm going to read from verses 10 through 22. And this is what it says. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, for the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. Verse 15. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
So here's the deal, right? In, in Scripture, for every Jacob, there is an Esau. Just like for every Isaac, there is an Ishmael. For every David, there is an Eliab. For every Joseph, there is a Reuben. For every Mary, there is a Martha. And these people that I mentioned second are not bad people. In fact, I would argue, along with all of us, if we were to use a broad brush here, that they were probably better candidates for God's blessings to be channeled into this world. And yet God chooses to go through the unknowns and the ones that I think none of us here would probably consider to be the people. When I first came to the U.S. as an international student, um, one of the things I would always be invited to is uh, presentations that groups that had gone to India would come back and do. And they'd be like, JP, this is a group that came out from India. They're doing a presentation. Come, you got to hear it. And so I would go and sit just because I wanted to hear what people thought about India. And I would sit in the congregation or in the crowd, small group, whatever, and as the presentation went on, I would begin to cringe because everything they said made it seem like India was the cesspool of dirt and, and cows everywhere, and there was garbage everywhere. And, and, and I kept thinking, but, but India is so much more than that. And oftentimes, that presentation would end with, friends, we're so blessed. And, and there was so much darkness there, and we got to bring light in. And I kept thinking, but we're a blessed people too. And God's been here for thousands of years. And so this morning, in light of what happened yesterday, and in light of, the sto like, of God's stories around the world, I want to share the story of my family, of how I ended up here. Not so much so you can set that story up and say, wow, look at that story, but really... It should be a reminder that when we see darkness in this world, let us not forget that God is still at work, that God has been at work, and God will continue to be at work, and we, we get to be that bearer. One of the most um, commonly asked questions of me um, is, what does JP stand for? And uh, I oftentimes will say, well, it's, it's John Paul. And then everybody gets disappointed because they think it should be some long Indian name that they can't pronounce. Um, and then they'll say to me, why did you shorten that? <laughs> um, and then they ask me this question, even John Paul, that's a very New Testament name. Between those two names, you have the whole New Testament essentially written. Um, how would you end up with such a Christian name? Are there a lot of Christians in India? And I'd say, no, you know, actually 81% of India is Hindu. 16% of India is Muslim, and of the remaining 3%, you can clump everybody together. We're talking about Christians and Jains and Buddhists and animists and people who believe in everything, people who believe in nothing, nominals. Everybody else gets clumped to that 3%, which is a very small minority. And they say, well, how did you end up with a name like John Paul? And that's the, name, that's the story I want to share with you this morning. As I mentioned, I was born, um, not born, I, was, I, I grew up in the city of Bangalore, but my parents are actually not from the city of Bangalore, but they're an overnight's journey away um, in further south. My dad was born in a village that actually his great-grandmother founded. Um, when I say village, uh, most of you are probably picturing African villages in your head. Um, Indian villages are different. They're huge. My dad's village today has over 100,000 people who live in it. Um, so we're talking about a pretty sizable village. Um, a very important family. In fact, my dad's father was the head of the village, um, and my dad was the eldest son. So in Asian context, you can imagine what kind of a responsibility and what kind of a um, hierarchy this would place them in. 
So this is a very important family, a very wealthy family, a very influential family. And this is where my dad was born and raised. And as he grew up, his mother, you know, showed him the family deities that they all grew up worshiping together. Life was good. Uh, this is how they'd been living for generations. But when teenage years hit, my dad began to develop what we all know as teenage angst. And, uh, and what he said for him was this vacuum in his heart. I mean, he had everything, but there was something in his heart that was missing. And he didn't know what it was. And again, you got to remember, these are parts of the world where the name Jesus or the church are just not you know, mentioned. It's not available for you to access any information about this. So in this community, when you have this sort of a vacuum, you don't know what to do, right? And so my dad began to look around for inspiration, and he saw his father, who was my grandfather, was one of India's uh, Communist Party leaders. In fact, he was one of India's freedom fighters. My dad said, maybe communism, that's it. I think that is the answer to my problems. And my grandfather, you know, was very excited because my dad's plan was to finish high school, go to college, major in political science, and then go on to Russia, which was then the Soviet Union, do his PhD work in communism studies, bring that back to India and spread it. Because he thought by doing that, that would solve India's problems, but also that would fill that vacuum in his heart. And my grandfather's like, perfect. You got my blessing. My eldest son following in my footsteps. Life is good. So my dad finished high school, went into college, majored in political science, got involved in the student communist party. And say what you want about the communists, but one thing they're really good at is they can identify leadership very quickly. And they saw my dad, in my dad, potential for one of their future leaders. So they kind of fast-tracked him. He got involved in the Student Communist Party, rose the ranks, was head of that chapter. Life was good. It was about halfway, right, through his college experience that my dad has this, first there's this gnawing realization which slowly develops into this loud voice that you just cannot ignore. It's that realization that no matter what he does, this vacuum in his heart still remained. And he had put all his eggs into this one basket. And now you're staring at a dead end. What do you do? Where do you go now? And he's depressed. And he's despondent. He does not know what to do. And he sits in his room one day and he looks around. And he sees a Bible. Now, if you're somebody who's never picked up a Bible in your life, and you're given that, what do you do, right? So my dad quite literally picks up this Bible and he's flipping through the sheets. He's not sure what he's looking for, but he's hoping for something, anything that would fill this vacuum in his heart. Now, it just so happened that as he was flipping through the pages, looking for whatever he was looking for, that one of the very few Christians on campus walked down the hallway. And he peeked into the room and he sees the president of the Student Communist Party reading his holy book. Those two things just don't add up, right? So he runs in so excited. He's like, is that a Bible you're reading? Now, as excited as he was, I think exponentially my dad was embarrassed um, because he should not be caught dead holding this thing. So he kind of slams it, throws it under his bed. He's like, what, what Bible? And, and the guy, they kind of have this look on my dad. He's like, okay, I should probably level with him. There's no Jedi mind trick that's going to just eliminate this moment that just happened. So he says to him, all right, it's the Bible. Um, I'll be honest with you, but I was reading it to find mistakes in it so I can argue with you guys. And the guy said, that's, that's actually perfect. There's a little group of us that meets in this coconut grove on campus. Once you bring your questions along, we'd love to talk to you about it. Now, again, it's one thing to be caught, you know, holding a Bible, 
but another thing to be associating yourself with these losers on campus. The Christians were the weird ones. They're the ones who worship this invisible being. They have these strange rituals they do. They sprinkle water. They, you know, and you got to look at it from a different perspective here, right? The last thing you want is a person of your stature to be associating with those people. And yet my dad was embarrassed. He was kind of like caught red-handed. So, and, and, and so he said, I don't, want, I don't think so. But they just had a little bit of a banter. My dad's like, okay, fine, I'll go to your little meeting. And so my dad made his way to this coconut grove. And now I, I can imagine this team of young men, right? Like, I mean, they probably have faced persecution every day on that campus for their faith. And now they have one of the leaders on campus coming to their little Bible study. And in their head, they probably had visions of a revival on campus dancing. And my dad comes to this meeting. He sits there, and he says, it's kind of like they don't have any amazing music. They don't have any special speaker. It was one of those, like, really just so... My my dad was so frustrated that halfway through the meeting, he just got up and he left because he didn't think they had what he needed. And the people who invited him were crushed. And this is not how it was supposed to end, right? My dad walking out. And so they did something which to this day I will forever be grateful for. They said, we're not going to let go of him that easy. We're going to pray for him for 10 days and invite him back. And so this team of young men prayed for 10 days. And one guy was given the thankless job of going back to my father and inviting him (laughs) back to the Skokner Grove, right? And so my dad sees them coming a mile away, and he says, I, I can't believe it. I mean, this is not embarrassment at this point. No, this is pure anger. I was there at your meeting. There was nothing you guys did that appealed to me or what I'm looking for. Why are we, why are we having this conversation? And, and they had this polite exchange where my dad insisted he shouldn't go back, and they insisted that he might want to check it out one more time. And they just had this back and forth, back and forth. My dad quickly realized this was a persistent bunch. They're polite but they're not going to let go of me yet. And so he made a deal with them. He said, okay, I'll go to your meeting one more time. But after that meeting is done, we're done. I don't want to see you guys. I don't want to talk to you. Let's not pretend we're friends. We will be ships passing through the night. Do we have a deal? And they said, okay. And so my dad made his way to this gathering one more time, right? And he endured what he describes to be the longest hour of his life, so to speak. Because, I mean, the music again was not as good as Daniel's, and uh, there was no special speaker that day. And yet, at the end of the hour, there was a little time where they all prayed. And they all just went around a little circle praying. And my dad, when it was his turn, he was under no obligation, and yet he prayed a prayer which went like this. He said, God, I don't know if you exist. These people say you do. If you are who they say you are, then give me this peace I'm looking for. If you can provide me this peace, I will work for you the rest of my life. It's a very dangerous prayer to be praying, right? (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, you know there was a little bit of a a genuineness in that prayer. It's it's kind of, it's it's the, the Hail Mary, proverbial Hail Mary pass. Throw it up there, see what happens. Meeting disbands, my dad walks back to his dorm. On that walk back, that dorm room for the very first time in his life, my dad experienced peace. And it's the peace of Christ that those of you who have experienced it know what I'm talking about. And being a genuine seeker of this peace, when he experienced it, 
He didn't attribute that to some sort of a coincidence or a feel-good moment. He knew what it was. And he turned around and he went back to the coconut grove to his new brothers and he said to them, all right, what is this that I'm experiencing? And they led him to the Lord that night. My dad then sent word back to his family and he said, Dad, I have become a Christian. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was, it was not, I mean, yeah, it was not a good letter to be sending home. My grandfather um, lost it. I mean, this is a big deal because my dad, like I said, it's an important family. My dad was a very important member of this family. My dad becoming a Christian was akin to my dad catching leprosy or some sort of a, a curse. Um, this would blacklist the entire family. Um, this would mean my dad's siblings, weddings would all be compromised. My grandfather was a businessman, a very successful, wealthy, like I said, influential businessman. All of those transactions would be affected because his eldest son has fallen into Christianity. And so, for good reason, my grandfather lost it. And he said, okay, somebody has brainwashed my son, is what he kept thinking. And he said, whatever you're doing, drop it and come home immediately. So my dad, being the obedient son, dropped everything and came home. It's kind of what you would expect a parent to do, right? You think your, your son has fallen into some bad influences. The first thing you have to do is get him away from them. So my dad comes home, and my grandfather's just watching him like a hawk. And two things happened that actually get my grandfather uh, really concerned. Um, two things that he was hoping would not happen. One was my dad was getting stronger and stronger in his faith every day. And two my dad's siblings were now getting interested. And so my grandfather uh, called my father one day to him and he said, look around. Everything you see is going to be yours one day. But you cannot be a Christian. Now, if you want to be a fool about this and you want your Jesus, there is no room in this house for you. You decide what do you want. My father looked at his father and he said to him these words. He said, all your wealth and all your influence will never give me what Jesus already did. Yes. If those are my choices, then I choose Christ. And so the wheels were set in motion. And this is a pretty big deal because in India, your family is everything. And when your family rejects you, you got nowhere to go. And yet, that's exactly what happened in a public ceremony. My dad was publicly disowned by his family. He ceased to be a son, ceased to be a sibling, ceased to... And you've got to realize, this is a community that his great-grandmother founded. This is the only community he's ever known. And that was rejecting him for his faith. And yet, his last words to the village as he left were true to, to this day. He said, my God will provide all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And with those words, he left. And in an ironic twist, my dad went and he kept telling his story. And... The irony here is my dad was actually trained to be a preacher by the Communist Party. <laughs> um, he was a brilliant orator. He could speak, but now he had a whole different message, a message of love, a message of Christ. And so he went, and being a lover of languages, he, my dad eventually, after a, a variety of different ministry opportunities, he ended up in the field of Bible translation. And Tamil is one of the languages that my family speaks. And so he was working on the translation of the Tamil Bible in the city of Chennai, a city that was, you know, what's, it's about six hours east of where I grew up. Now, you had to realize, uh, my grandfather, you don't just stop loving your child, right? I mean, in his head, he thought, okay, a public spectacle like this 
will maybe shake some sense into this guy. He's a spoiled rich kid, right? I mean, he'll need food, he'll need clothing, he'll run out of all that stuff, and then he'll come back crawling to me. This is what I told uh, Dave about. I said, my, my family story is like the story of the prodigal son, but the Bollywood version, right? Uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of spice added there. Um, so my grandfather, you know, like pitches the, his proverbial lawn chair on his, you know, front yard and he waits for the prodigal to come back. You know, it's going to be one day when he's going to have to be feeding the pigs and he's going to realize the people in my dad's house have it better. But God did provide just enough. And so my grandfather decided, okay, if he's not going to come to me, I'm going to go after him. And so my grandfather went to the city of Chennai and he found my dad and he told him, in your Bible that you say you love so much, um, does it not tell you to honor your parents. My dad said, yeah, but you know, he's being back into this corner of sorts. And he said, sure, um, how can I honor you? And my grandfather said, well, you can marry the girl I choose. Arranged marriages to this day are very, very common in India. Um, most marriages, 90, I would say 90, 95% of them are arranged. But my dad was hoping to marry somebody who was also a Christian so they could together grow in the faith, together they could serve. And so he tells his father, sure, you, you find the girl, I'll marry her. Just make sure she's a Christian. And, my, and my, my grandfather said to him, you are the only fool in this entire community who's a Christian. Where will I find a Christian bride? And my grandfather is absolutely right. My dad was the first follower of Jesus in the entire tribe. And then my grandfather said to him, you know, you say your God is almighty. Well, if he's almighty, he can change her too. And he kind of just throws down the gauntlet, right? So my, my dad went, he said, I'll pray about it, and then came back and told his father, okay, you find the girl, I will marry her. And so, my friends, was launched the most rigorous search in all of South India, right, to find the most pious girl they could lay their eyes on, a girl who could not only... Uh, stand up for her faith and belief, but will be able to convert my dad back to his family's religion. And they scoured. This is a very, very connected family. So they scoured every possibility, and they finally found the perfect woman, who today is my mom. Um, at that point, she was, just a, she was just out of college, was very, very passionate about what she believed, but with the same amount of passion that she believed what she did, she hated Christians, who she considered to be very narrow-minded people. When you have a pantheon of gods, adding one more was not a problem. But this insistence that Jesus is the only God, that was where she had, like, major issues with the Christians. And they met her, they loved her, and they said, this is the girl we want our son to marry. My mom and dad met the day they were married. Um, all my mom was told was essentially, the person you're going to marry has fallen into Christianity. Your job is to bring him out. Well, don't worry about it. His family, our family, we're all on the same side. He's the only one. And my mom was like, two months, I'll bring him back. But she's like so headstrong. She had this. They had this all figured out. And so they got married in what my dad describes as a very bizarre wedding ceremony where everybody except the groom and the five Baptist pastors running the show were the only Christians. So you can imagine, it was a little bit of a fiasco. But, um, but after, the, after the wedding itself, my dad's prayer was, God, you brought her into my life. I will not force my beliefs on her. I will be faithfully doing the task you've called me to do, but I entrust her and her soul and her heart into your hands. 
And so my dad was a good husband and a good in-law, and he kept doing the translation work. My mom, on the other hand, took it upon herself. I mean, she had a job to do, right? Every opportunity she had, she would mock and question and ridicule my dad as to why he had to turn his back on his family and his culture and all of these facts. Why did he have to be so narrow-minded? My dad would patiently answer all those questions, and thus began their first year of marriage. After a while, my mom also comes from a pretty wealthy family. Her family, they're a family of milk merchants, and here they're living on a missionary's income in, in India, which, by the way, is not a lot. Um, and she said, you know, God was providing all our needs, but I had so many wants, she said. And for her, money was a weakness. And so she saw my dad working from home, and she said one day, I'm an educated woman. I cannot be teasing my husband the rest of my life. I need something more productive to do. And if it helps me make some money, why not? And so she tells my dad, if I do what you do, can I get paid for it? And my dad was like, oh, um, I don't know. Let me find out. And his bosses said, no, the translation work is almost done. We don't need any more translators. But before the translation gets printed, we need somebody to make a legible copy of this translator work. Translators are like doctors. They have the worst handwriting. My dad is a great example, atrocious handwriting. Uh, and you don't want a Bible filled with typos. So you need somebody with legible penmanship. Does your wife have good handwriting? And they invited my mom to send in some samples of her, of her writing. My mom applied along with, I don't know how many, lots of people applied for this job. But they loved my mom's handwriting the best. And so she got the job. And it was funny because my mom was so excited, uh, she made more money transcribing than my dad did translating. Um, and for her, like I said, money is a weakness, but what she didn't realize was, in essence, God was paying her to read and write the New Testament three times. And she said the first reading, second, it's fine. The third reading of the Gospel of John, she said her mind's eye was open to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And she said, uh, I heard Christ ask me, am I still one among many? And she said, at that point, she could no longer say yes to that. And so my, my mom then surrenders. My dad was not even home when this happened. This was her faith journey. My dad was off on a mission trip. He comes back. My mom meets him at the door, and she says to him, I've decided to follow Jesus. And my dad says, well, <laughs> you know what we have to do now. So they took two sheets of paper, and they wrote two letters, right? They all went to my mom's... <laughs> One to my mom's family, one to my dad's family. Again, I mean, this is like my mom's family were a little bit more docile in their response. They were, they were kind of did the, did the quiet, like, well, we've got to do the disowning thing. But they weren't as volatile or angry like my dad's family was. This is not how the script was supposed to end, right? And so, and, that, and, and yet that's what it was. Um, it was into this home that I was born. I have a younger brother, James, who was born a, a couple of years after that. And we were raised in a family, I didn't realize, uh, that was an outcast family. Um, only recently my mom said something to me that I've always appreciated. They would tell us their story, but they would omit key features from it uh, as we were growing up. Because their rationale was, you know, one day God will bring everybody into the fold. And until that day, as parents, we will not be responsible for sowing seeds of poison into the hearts of our children. Because I could have grown up to be a very angry man, angry with the way my parents were treated. Instead, I grew up thinking that my relatives were really busy people, and they were socially awkward because uh, they never came to visit us, and when we did visit them, they never spoke to us. Um, (Laughter) 
There are two lessons, you know, you grow up in a home like this that become very obvious immediately. One is there's a cost involved to following Jesus, a tremendous cost, and both my parents paid it. And the second, that there's incredible power in God's word. Uh, be it from the simple act of flipping through the pages of a Bible not knowing what you're looking for, or having God pay you to read his word, it can transform your life, your community. But the biggest lesson I learned from the story is this, that God's promises aren't just for the best of the best. And this is my favorite part of Jacob's story that I read earlier. Jacob is a complete loser. As a, if you leave his story, he's a cheat, and yet God uses him to found a nation. God was not giving up on Jacob and instead uses him in powerful ways. And growing up, I was never the best at anything. I was a shy kid. I was a good student, but I was not the best. I was a terrible athlete. I can't, uh, I couldn't sing, and I, I, I can't sing any, still. I can't sing and clap, with the hand, clap my hands at the same time. Um, and I just have this list of things that I'm just not good at. And yet God chose me, an average guy from a country that does not have a 3% composition that says they're Christians, to be called his own. And to be given one of the most important tasks this universe has ever seen, to be his ambassador to this world around us. And I stand here and I look at us, average people called to do extraordinary things. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What a tremendous honor that is. God could do all of this by himself, and yet he chooses us. Completely inept, <laughs> insecure, unqualified individuals to do such an important task. And one more thing. Every time I tell my parents' story, I always feel like, wow, that's, that's an amazing story. And God's like, JP, you've not seen anything yet. Um, if you think that's great, watch and see what I do with your grandfather. <laughs> my grandfather, you know, for a long time, he was, he's somebody we love. He is not the antagonist in this story. He's not somebody... Um, who becomes the villain, uh, because all along, while I think it's the story of my parents, it's really the story of my grandfather, um, who did what he could to protect his family in the end, um, as everything, like I said, like the prodigal son story, there's so many similarities, because what he does is my grandfather decides he's going to insult my dad one more time, and he portions out his wealth, and he gives everything to my dad's younger brother, and nothing to my dad, just to insult him one more time. And my grandfather... Um, realized very quickly that all his possessions, that's what people were after. And over the years, the only doors that stayed open for him was the door of the son he rejected. Um, my parents would always invite him to come and stay with him, stay, stay with us, and he would always say, no, I don't think so, I don't think so, I need to be here. But over the years, um, that relationship began to develop and thaw. And, um, as, we, as I was born and raised, my grandfather began to visit us more and more. And um, I'll tell you this last bit of story, this, this story, which will kind of, kind of put a little exclamation point on what God does. Um, my grandfather was getting up in age, and my parents were concerned that he was living by himself with nobody to take care of him. And so they would say to him, 
twilight years of your life, why don't you come and live with us? And he would say, no, a man has to live in his ancestral village. I can't leave this. But he realized very quickly that he was frail and that he needed help. And so finally changed the tune to, if I sell this house, I'll come and live with you guys. And one day we get a call. Uh, my wife and I were hosting a team in the, from the U.S. in India, and we get a call from a village. Um, and if somebody said, you know, there's been a misunderstanding. Your grandfather was physically assaulted last night. And so my, my uh, dad calls up my grandfather, and he says to him, Dad, you, you can't live by yourself. Um, you, we can't take care of you. Come, move in with us. And, and my grandfather said to my father, absolutely not. He said, I need you to come and bring John and James with you. James is my younger brother. So I told Katie, you know, hold on the fort. We've got family business to take care of. And we drove down to the village. It was evening time when we got there, my dad's ancestral village. My, my grandfather was there. He met us. He showed us his favorite, you know, restaurants in the area. We walked around, introduced us to people. And the next day, we got him back in our car and drove back to Bangalore without my grandfather. And it was one of those bizarre, like, you think at that point, like, why did we do all this? It's kind of pointless. And yet later on, it's when th this epiphany of sorts happened. Because my grandfather, when we were in the village, we asked what happened. And while he was, he was physically assaulted because the realtor and had, had, him had some issues, but the guys he hired to beat up my grandfather in the middle of the village were hurling insults at my grandfather, saying words like this. They said, this person has nobody the only person who cares about him is some Christian who lives in Bangalore. Now, I think it was my grandfather's last stand in that village. Because a few months later, my grandfather did move in with my parents. But his last stand was this. He said to the village, don't tell me I have nobody. I have people. And who does he have standing behind him? It's the outcast family. The son he rejected and his grandsons. I was my, gra my grandfather's favorite grandson growing up. It's a title I take very with, with a lot of pride. And um, what I want to do now is I'll just say to you this. The last time I had a meaningful conversation with my grandfather, my brother took a picture. Uh, my grandfather died a couple of years ago. I miss him greatly, but my grandfather died in the Lord. And um, I know that I'll get to see him one day. But I want to have the team throw up the picture right now because this picture will capture for you everything there is to say about how much we loved each other. Metal getting up there. Know that I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Will you pray with me? God, how good it is to be in your house, to be reminded of a story of your love for us that never ceases, that never fails. In a world that is hurting so much today, Father, may we be reminded of your powerful love at work. May we be reminded of those people who need to hear about this. I thank you for this wonderful congregation, a congregation that is ordinary in many ways and yet extraordinary because of what you've done in them and through them. And as we head into this week, into the challenges that lie ahead, may we go so 
with the confidence that you go before us. Light that path for us, Father. Pick us up if we should fall. Be beside us to be our friend and in us to give us your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.